I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to discard our modern traditions and our modern culture to discover what scripture has to say about itself. Well, the book of Leviticus is broken up into four main sections, as we've talked about before, and each section deals primarily with a single aspect of worship to Hashem. And then between each of these sections of Leviticus, we find an interlude of sorts with all four topics of Leviticus brought together for as little as one and as many as three chapters. And in each interlude, we find that all four main topics are combined together and explored through the lens of the priesthood those who were tasked with representing Hashem to the people, and the people to Hashem. So when we open the book of Leviticus, we are first confronted with a form of worship that makes many uncomfortable. The thought of animal sacrifice is seen by many today as a barbaric practice. Taking the life of an animal and spilling it out on the ground is part of worship. Burning the carcass completely in some cases. Taking only a small part and eating the carcass in others and again burning it up on an altar, or in a waste heap. But as we examined each of these sacrifices individually, we looked at what scripture had to say about them. Not limiting ourselves to Leviticus or the specific chapters at hand, we discovered something. Each of these sacrifices has an ideal of worship at its base, an attitude that the worshiper should adopt when presenting these sacrifices. Those attitudes being 1. The fear of Hashem. 2. Gift and tribute giving. 3. Friendship and fellowship. 4. Thanksgiving. 5. Faithfulness to what we say we're going to do. 6. Abject humility. and 7. Sorrow and repentance. These are the attitudes that are shrouded in the practice of sacrifice, and while sacrifice has gone away, these attitudes should continue to accompany our worship of Hashem. In the second major section of Leviticus, we learn of uncleanness and how it affects each one of us, and how it's not to be brought before Hashem. Now, this uncleanness is a state that we will move in and out of throughout our lives. It's a state that's inescapable, but it's also a state that separates us from God. And as we examined uncleanness, we discovered that uncleanness is always associated with death in some way. And then as we consider this, we arrive at the conclusion that it is death that ultimately separates us from God. Not the act of dying, but the sheer fact that we live in a body that will die. That we live in a world of death. And that death is an affront to Hashem, and so its effects must be removed from us. And we found that death, this great separator, is the consequence of sin. It is the side effect of disobedience to Hashem. In the third movement of Leviticus, we learn of the third topic of the book, 
the topic of holiness. And we found that holiness is not something that we can achieve through action. Holiness is something that we are granted solely on the basis of our relationship and connection to Hashem. He is holy, and because we are in relationship with Him, we too are holy. And as we discovered, Scripture approaches holiness from two fronts. The first is defilement, the things that a person can do that will remove the status of holiness from them and remove them from the community of God. The second is an exploration of the things that a person should do now that they have been granted holiness. And Leviticus gives several examples of how this holiness can be lived out in light of the commands that were already given on Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. The text extrapolates those commands into short quips that reveal aspects of holiness that's contained in each. And the expectation is then placed upon us, for we have been granted holiness. We are holy in our being because of our relationship with Hashem and nothing else. But now that we are holy, now we need to act in a way that demonstrates and lives out holiness into the world. Not to gain anything, but in response and gratefulness for what we have already been given. And this was the topic that closed the last main movement of the book of Leviticus that we were in. But as we're going to soon see, the topic of holiness isn't completely over yet in the text of Leviticus. Today we're going to begin the fourth and the final major topic of Leviticus, a topic that is essential and vital to the worship of Hashem. Too often when we come to know God, we seek to know Him on an individual level. And for some of us, and for a time, this is where we stop. Our relationship with Hashem is between Him and us. No one else needs to get involved or be part of our worship. We're lone wolves and we're able to live this life alone. Well, this final topic of Leviticus, it sheds a light on that lie. It is true that we must worship as individuals. That is how Leviticus begins. Most of the sacrifices described in the beginning are individual sacrifices that are between the worshiper and God. But worship is something that must also be done in community. Communal worship is so important that the last part of the book of Leviticus is dedicated to this topic. And communal worship begins with the festivals, the feasts, the Moedim. So let's open up the book of Leviticus and read about these festivals that our God has given. Festivals that are not about us, but are about Him. Leviticus twenty-two twenty-six through 23 And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day and thereafter it is acceptable as an offering made by fire to Hashem. But do not slay a cow or a sheep and its young on the same day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to Hashem, sacrifice it for your acceptance. It is eaten that same day. Leave none of it till morning. I am Hashem. And you shall guard my commands and do them. I am Hashem. And do not profane my holy name. And I shall be set apart among the children of Israel. I am Hashem who sets you apart, who brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim to be your Elohim. I am Hashem. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The appointed times of Hashem, which you are to proclaim as set-apart gatherings, my appointed times are these. Six days work is done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a set-apart gathering. You do no work, it is a Sabbath to Hashem in all your dwellings. These are the appointed times of Hashem, set-apart gatherings which you are to proclaim at their appointed times. 
And the first new moon on the 14th day of the new moon between the evenings is the Pesach to Hashem. And on the 15th day of this new moon is the festival of Matzot to Hashem. Seven days you eat unleavened bread. On the first day you have a set-apart gathering and you do no servile work. And you shall bring an offering made by fire to Hashem for seven days. On the seventh day it is a set-apart gathering. You do no servile work. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and you shall say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, and shall reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before Hashem for your acceptance. On the morrow after the Sabbath the priest waves it. And on that day when you wave the sheaf, you shall prepare a male lamb, a year old, a perfect one, as an ascending offering to Hashem, and its grain offerings two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to Hashem, a sweet fragrance, and its drink offering, one-fourth of a hin of wine. And you do not eat bread or roasted grain or fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your Elohim, a law forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count for yourselves seven complete Sabbaths, until the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, you count fifty days. Then you shall bring a new grain offering to Hashem. Bring from your dwellings for a wave offering two loaves of bread of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour they are, baked with leaven, first fruits to Hashem. And besides the bread you shall bring seven lambs a year old, perfect ones, and one young bull and two rams. They are an ascended offering to Hashem with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, an offering made by fire for a sweet fragrance to Hashem. And you shall offer one male goat as a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them, besides the bread of the first fruits, as a wave offering before Hashem, besides the two lambs. They are set apart to Hashem for the priest. And on this same day you shall proclaim a set-apart gathering for yourselves. You do no servile work on it, a law forever in all your dwellings, throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, do not completely reap the corners of your field when you reap. And do not gather any gleanings from your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am Hashem, your Elohim. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh new moon, on the first day of the new moon, you have a rest, a remembrance of Teruah, a set-apart gathering. You do no servile work, and you shall bring an offering made by fire to Hashem. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, On the tenth day of the seventh new moon is Yom HaKippurim, it shall be a set-apart gathering for you, and you shall afflict your beings, and shall bring an offering made by fire to Hashem. And you do no work on that same day, for it is Yom Kippurim, to make atonement for you before Hashem, your Elohim. For any being who is not afflicted on that day, he shall be cut off from his people. And any being who does any work on that same day, that being I shall destroy from the midst of his people. You do no work, a law forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It is a Sabbath of rest to you, and you shall afflict your beings on the ninth day of the new moon at evening. From evening to evening you observe your Sabbath. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh new moon is a festival of Sukkot for seven days to Hashem. On the first day is a set-apart gathering. You do no servile work. For seven days you bring an offering made by fire to Hashem. On the eighth day there shall be a set-apart gathering for you, and you shall bring an offering made by fire to Hashem. It is a closing festival. You do no servile work. 
These are the appointed times of Hashem, which you proclaim as set-apart gatherings, to bring an offering made by fire to Hashem, an ascending offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, as commanded for every day. Besides the Sabbaths of Hashem, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vows, and besides all your voluntary offerings which you give to Hashem, on the fifteenth day, on the seventh new moon, when you gather the fruit of the land, celebrate the festival of Hashem for seven days. On the first day is a rest, and on the eighth day a rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of good trees, branches of palm trees, twigs of leafy trees, and willows of the stream, and shall rejoice before Hashem your Elohim for seven days. And you shall celebrate it as a festival to Hashem for seven days in the year, a law forever in your generations. Celebrate it in the seventh new moon. Dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native born in Israel dwell in booths, so that your generations know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim. I am Hashem your Elohim. Thus did Moshe speak of the appointed times of Hashem to the children of Israel. So as we open this Parsha, we find something that sticks out like a sore thumb. Why is this Parsha begun in chapter 22 with the age of an animal before it can be offered as a sacrifice? Why the part about not killing an animal and its children in the same day? Why do we open with one last part of this holiness code? Leviticus 22.32 says, And do not profane my holy name, and I shall be holy among the children of Israel. I am Hashem who sets you apart, who sanctifies you, who makes you holy. This closing is very much a closing to the topic of holiness. So why was it included in the Parsha with the festivals? Why split here? Well, if we pay very close attention to the festivals, we will discover that they are all connected to the number seven in some way, with one that's connected to the eighth day. And so it is my belief that this section was chosen to be added to this Parsha because of its connection to the numbers of 7 and 8. Consider it. Leviticus 23 begins with the Sabbath, the weekly seventh-day festival of rest. The Passover occurs on the 14th day. Matzah lasts for seven days. Shavuot occurs the day after counting seven sevens. Yom Teruah begins on the first day of the seventh month. Yom Kippur occurs on the 10th day of the 7th month. And Sukkot begins on the 14th day of the 7th month, and it lasts for 7 days, and the great final day occurs on the 8th day. Each of these festivals is connected to 7 in some way, and we find that there are 7 days of no labor that occur throughout the year in connection to these festivals. The first and the last day of Matzah, Shavuot, Yom Teruah, Yom Kippur, and the first and the last day of Sukkot, and the first day of Sukkot and the eighth day celebration, seven days of no work that is set apart from the normal seventh day Sabbath. Now this is all fascinating, but what does it teach us about God or our relationship with Him? Well, frankly, I have no idea, but I do believe that is why this Parsha begins in chapter 22 rather than beginning with chapter 23. This idea of the passage of time as broken down into units of seven is central to the communal worship of Hashem. And I'm not going to attempt to understand the mind of God on the topic of numbers. That's something that's beyond my reasoning. So with that, let's turn to chapter 23 and begin discussing these festivals and what meaning they hold for the people of God. 
Now, let me preface this by saying that this topic is way too large to be covered in a single teaching. There is so much depth to these festival days and what they reveal that I cannot possibly cover it all at once. But I will do my best to provide several foundations that you can then pursue on your own time and in your own study. So first off, let me ask a question. How many festivals are there that are listed in this chapter? The traditional answer is that there are, of course, seven. But are there? Is the Shabbat a festival or a Moedim according to this listing? Leviticus 23, 1-3 says, And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The appointed times, the festivals, the Moedim of Hashem, which you are to proclaim as holy gatherings, my appointed times are these. Six days work is done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a holy gathering. You do no work on it. It is a Sabbath to Hashem in all your dwellings. Now, if we take this at face value, then every seventh day Shabbat is a festival to Hashem. If this is the case, then there are, in fact, eight festivals listed here. But the distinction could be made that the Sabbath is a weekly appointed time and the remainder, they're all yearly festivals. So let me rephrase the question. How many yearly festivals are there that are listed in Leviticus 23? Seven? Are you sure? Okay, let's run with the number seven. What are those seven festivals? Traditionally, we see the list of festivals listed something like this. Passover, matzah, unleavened bread, first fruits, the waving of the sheaf offering, Shavuot, or Pentecost, Yom Teruah, the Day of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, and Zikot, the Feast of Tabernacles. But there's a problem with this listing. It's purely traditional. The text does not support this being the list of the seven Moadim. Now, I know this might seem like heresy or sacrilege, but hear me out. If we look to verse 2, what does it say? It says, Speak to the children of Israel and say, The appointed times of Hashem, which you are to proclaim as set-apart gatherings. My appointed times are these. The Moadim, the appointed time or festivals, which you are to proclaim as holy gatherings. They are to be Mikre Kodesh. Now this is translated as holy gathering or holy convocation or holy assemblies, among others. The meanings of these words is rather a holy proclamation. Now there is some disagreement as to whether this phrase requires a physical gathering or whether this there is an allowance for this holy proclamation occurring without people present. Now that's not a debate that I wish to get into today, but I do want to make you aware of the issue. I personally believe that these days are to be days of community interaction, but with the technology that's available today, that interaction does not have to be in person, only face-to-face. But let's return to that phrase, Mikre Kodesh. According to verse 2, the Moedim are defined by being proclaimed as Mikre Kodesh. Then again in verse 4, Leviticus 23.4, These are the appointed times of Hashem, set-apart gatherings which you are to proclaim at their appointed times. Then again, near the end of the chapter, we read in verse 37, These are the appointed times of Hashem which you proclaim as set-apart gatherings, to bring an offering made by fire to Hashem, 
an ascending offering and a grain offering and a sacrifice and drink offerings as commanded for every day. So if we take these three instances at face value, the Moedim are to be Mikre Kodesh. The days that are specifically stated to be Mikre Kodesh, these are the festivals. And if we look through Leviticus 23, there are in fact seven of these days, but they are not the list that we just went through. If we take this view, then Passover is not a Moedim as we understand it. Now, Passover is a Chag, a pilgrimage festival, but the 14th day is not a Mikra Kodesh. Instead, the first time that we read this phrase in connection to a specific day aside from the Sabbaths is in verse 7. The first day of Matzah is a Mikra Kodesh. And then in verse 8, the last day of Matzah is a Mikra Kodesh. So if we're forming a list according to this view, Pesach is not a Moedim as we traditionally understand it. It is important. It is a Chag. And arguably, the Chags are greater than the other festivals. But our first two Moedim in this view are the first and the last day of Matzah. Now, in verses 10 through 14, we read of an event that we often call the Festival of Bikurim, or the Day of First Fruits Offering, or the Waving of the Sheaf Offering. This is a day that is to occur the day after the Sabbath in the week of Matzah. If we look to the text, this day is not called a Moed, and there is no Mikra Kodesh on this day. There is a description of what is to be done on this day, but it is only the priests that are involved on this day, not the community. But the priests on this day, they act as representatives for the entire community, in that they they bring the first fruits of all the crops of the land before Hashem, and they wave them before him for their acceptance. Now again, this day is important in several ways. It is the day when the count begins to the next festival of Shavuot. It is the day that was fulfilled by Yeshua when he rose from the grave as the first fruits of the resurrection. And this day is intricately connected to the festival of Matzah as it occurs in the midst of the seven-day observance. But this day is not one of the seven Moedim of Leviticus 23. It is part of two in that it occurs between the first two, and it's the starting point for counting up to the third. But in and of itself, it is not a Moed. The next time that we read of a Mikra Kodesh in Leviticus 23 is in verse 21, and it's the Moed of Shavuot, the festival of weeks that occurs seven weeks after the day of the sheaf offering. Now this festival is significant in that it is the only festival in which two loaves of leavened bread are brought and waved before Hashem. There is more to this Moed, but we'll return to that in a moment. The next time that we read of a Mikra Kodesh is in verse 24 on the day of Teruah, the day of the trumpet blasts or the day of blasting or sounding. Yom Teruah, we tend to call it. Now, this day has a lot of meaning, which again, we will get into shortly, but for now, let's simply establish this day as a Moedim. The next Mikra Kodesh is found in verse 27, Yom Kippur. This day is not only a Mikra Kodesh, but it is also the only day in all of these seven festivals that are called a Sabbath. The other Moedim, they're days of no labor, but they're not Sabbaths. The only one of the Moedim that is also a Sabbath is Yom Kippur. The next Mikra Kodesh is in verse 35. That's the first day of Sukkot, the Festival of Tabernacles, or the the Feast of Booths. 
And if we're using the traditional listing that I went through earlier, this is where the Moedim end. But when we consider that according to the beginning and the end of the chapter, the definition of a Moed is a day that is also a Mikro Kodesh, then we're only at six Moed at this point. There is one more that we often downplay and that we don't pay a whole lot of attention to. In fact, all too often, this is the day that's expendable for many. We travel home in order to get to work the following day on this day. We're tired, we're dirty, and ready to return to our regularly scheduled life. But this day is perhaps the most important of the Moedim. This final Moed is found in verse 36, the eighth day celebration, the last great day that is referred to in John 7.37. And on that last day, the great day of the festival, Yeshua stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and let him who believes in me drink. And as we read in Leviticus 23.36, the last day is the closing festival. Not simply the closing festival of Sukkot, but the closing festival of all of the Moedim that have been recounted in this chapter. In fact, if we take John 7 at face value, this last day is the greatest day of the festival of Sukkot. Not the first, the last day, the great day. But can we find this in the text of Leviticus 23, or was this simply a tradition? Well, there is a word in verse 36 that's not used anywhere else in this chapter to describe the last day Moedim. That word is found in the final sentence. My translation says, it is a closing festival, you do no servile work. Now that phrase, closing festival, in other translations is a solemn assembly. And the Septuagint is translated as, it is a time of release. Now, it just might be that this day simply means solemn assembly or simply assembly. But it also might be a word that's used to highlight the unique and the important nature of this final eighth day celebration. So if we take this list, we come up with a slightly different listing of Moedim than what we traditionally learn when we first come to understand the importance of the festivals. These are the first day of matzah, the last day of matzah, Shavuot, Yom Teruah, Yom Kippur, the first day of Sukkot, and the eighth day celebration. When we take the idea that the Moedim are days which are also Mikra Kodesh, then this is the list that we come up with. And with this list, we discover that the day of no work is for a purpose. It is to allow the people to have a Mikra Kodesh, that holy proclamation that defines the Moedim in verse 2, 4, and 37 of this chapter. And we see this clearly in verse 37. You are to proclaim a Mikra Kodesh in order to bring your offerings. So with this new list, let's go through these holy days and discuss the themes that are represented in each of these festivals. And as we explore, we're going to find that the gospel story is told in the Moedim of Hashem. So while we used to start with Pesach, we discovered Pesach is itself not technically a Moedim. It's a Chag. What's the difference? Well, a Moedim, as we've discussed, is a day with a Mikra Kodesh. A Chag, however, is a festival when the people make a pilgrimage to the temple or the tabernacle. Now, there is a lot of overlap, but as we see here, not every Chag is a Moed, and not every Moed is a Chag. Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur, for example, are not Chag, but they are Moed. 
and Pesach is a Chag, but not technically a Moed. So while Pesach, the day of judgment and the day of the slaying of the firstborn, is not a Moed, the following day is. And what is significant about the following day? Well, the first day of Matzah is the day of release. It's the day that Israel left Egypt and the first day of freedom from their enslavement. From this we see that the day of judgment is not a day to be celebrated. And as we see this idea repeated in Amos, Amos 5, 18-20, Woe to you who are longing for the day of Hashem! What does the day of Hashem mean to you? It is darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear shall meet him, or entered his house, rested his hand on the wall, and a serpent shall bite him. Is not the day of Hashem darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? The day of Pesach, the day of the destruction of the Lamb, the day of judgment on Egypt, their firstborn and their gods, is not a day of celebration. It is not a day to be sought after. Judgment is not the gospel. Instead, freedom and release is the gospel of Messiah. What is it that Yeshua proclaimed on that day that he first publicly announced his ministry in Luke four sixteen through 21 And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and according to his practice he went into the congregation on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and having unrolled the scroll he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of Hashem is upon me because he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to send away the crushed ones with a release, to proclaim the acceptable year of Hashem. And having rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the congregation were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been filled in your hearing. When Yeshua proclaimed his ministry, it was not from the standpoint of judgment. It was not that he would destroy all of our or even all of his enemies. It was from the standpoint of release from captivity. And in the crucifixion, we see the same thing. The day of Pesach was a day of despair and darkness. The day when the judgment of God fell on Yeshua on our behalf was not a day of celebration. But the next day... The next day was the day of release and freedom. Now the people did not know it yet, but they had been set free from sin and death. In fact, in the time of Yeshua, the crucifixion it looked like a loss. It was not until the first fruits offering was waved before the Father that true freedom was achieved, recognized, and celebrated. Yeshua rose from the dead, and the great enemy was defeated on the day of the wave offering the day after the Sabbath, during the week of Matzah. And we see this in the story of the Exodus. Pesach, it came and went. And the first day was the day of release, but the people were not yet free. They traveled for some time, for a series of threes. For Israel, it was three stops to the Red Sea. For Pharaoh, it was three days before he pursued. And it was on the next day that Pharaoh was truly defeated. The freedom that had begun just days before was realized, and the celebration of this release occurred with the people. But this day is not a moed in itself. It is a day that is intricately interwoven with the moeds of matzah. But it is not itself a moed. 
The Moed comes on the next day. And in the Exodus, we found that the sixth day of Matzah was a day of doubt and yet provision from God. The waters of Marah, the bitter waters that were the first that Israel came upon in the wilderness. The day when Moses had to add a stick to the water to make it drinkable. But the seventh day was the day when they came upon the oasis. Seventy trees, twelve springs. This day was the true day of freedom for Israel. When they left on that first day, their freedom had only begun, but was not fully realized. Pharaoh was still a threat until the third day when he was not. However, thirst was still a threat until the seventh day when it was not. And then the next day Israel was given rest in the place of paradise in the midst of the land of death. Fast forward 50 days in both situations and we arrive at Shavuot, the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19-24, through 24, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, the day when the people were empowered to act in the calling that they had been given through perfect instructions to guide us in the ways of mercy, truth, and justice, and through the Holy Spirit empowering us to act out the instructions perfectly. And then the summer, the time of growth, the time of bearing fruit, waiting for the harvest to come in all of the festivals of the seventh month. The first of these fall celebrations is the Moed of Teruah, the festival of trumpets or blasts. This day is the only day in the Moed calendar that occurs on the first day of the month. Now, this is significant as the festival has become known as the one festival when no man knew the day when it was to begin. In ancient Israel, the month did not begin until the sliver of the moon was sighted in the sky. Now, this could be one of several days in a row, but no one would know for sure on the first possible day whether it was that day or the next. But when the moon was sighted, this day became a very important day. Now, in the time of the monarchy, it was on this day that the king would have his coronation ceremony. Regardless of when the king assumed the throne, the coronation always occurred on Yom Teruah. And in the Gospel of Mark, we read the crucifixion steeped in that language. And that's a study that we went through back in the Yom Teruah special. But we also find Yom Teruah a language used in other places in the New Testament. For example, when Yeshua refers to his own return in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, when he says that the day and hour no man knows, this is Yom Teruah language. Now, many will tell us that this means that no one can even know the season of when Yeshua returns, but Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 says that this day should not surprise us. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-4 For you yourselves know very well that the day of Hashem comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. And in Revelation, we read of the Messiah coming as a conquering king and ruling over the earth in justice. Add to this that Psalm 45 combines the images of the coronation and the wedding of the king. And just as we see with the Minka sacrifice, this practice it combines the symbols of God as both king and husband.
And in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, just after the statement of no man knows the day and the hour, we read that they waited because they did not know when the bridegroom would arrive. And when the bridegroom did arrive, he was accompanied by a great shout. And when you dig into the meaning of teruah, it does not inherently mean a shofar or a trumpet. This day is also known as the day of shouting. For teruah, it's just a shout. Then ten days between Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur are known as the days of awe. The days of the first of the month, the ones between Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur, they're kind of included in these days of awe, these final ten days of the forty days of Teshuvah, or repentance, leading up to Yom Kippur. This is the last chance to repent and get right with God and others before Yom Kippur arrives. It's the time to deal with individual sins before God deals with the communal sins of the people. And at the end of that 10 days is Yom Kippur. Now, we recently covered this festival when we went through Leviticus 16. In fact, we've covered it twice already this year. One thing that I'd like to highlight is that Yom Kippur is the only one of the Moed that's called the Shabbat. All others are simply a day of no work. What's the difference? Well, if we turn to Exodus twelve sixteen, it says, And on the first day is a set-apart gathering, and on the seventh day you have a set-apart gathering. No work at all is done in them, only that which is eaten by every being, that alone is prepared by you. On the Moedim, we are permitted to prepare food. On a Sabbath, however, all cooking is to be done the day before, according to Exodus 16. Now, the Moedim, while they have colloquially taken on the name High Sabbath, This is kind of a misnomer. They're not a Sabbath. They are not a Sabbath, and they're never referred to as a Sabbath in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, there is a case to be made that these days were called Sabbaths by the time of the New Testament, and that can be important in discerning the timing of the resurrection in the New Testament. Regardless, that's not a study I'm going to get into today. After Yom Kippur, the next Moed is the first day of Sukkot. The day that begins the seven-day festival where we are to move out of our regular homes and move into temporary dwellings. This festival recalls the fact that Yeshua came and he tabernacled among us in the temporary dwelling of his flesh. This festival reminds us that we do not depend on a physical shelter to protect us. Hashem is our shelter and our protection. And it is during this festival that we are specifically commanded to rejoice. Leviticus 23.40 And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of good trees, the branches of palm trees, twigs, and leafy trees, and willows of the stream, and shall rejoice before Hashem your God for seven days. In fact, we are not only told to rejoice in Deuteronomy, we are told that there should only be rejoicing. Deuteronomy 16.13-15 Perform the festival of Sukkot for seven days after the ingathering from your threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your festival, you and your sons and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. For seven days you shall celebrate to Hashem your God in the place which Hashem chooses because Hashem your Elohim does bless you in all your increase and in all the work of your hands and you shall be only rejoicing while living in tents, while dealing with the weather while sleeping in an uncomfortable and unfamiliar bed, while surrounded by unfamiliar surroundings and even unfamiliar people. With our lives in a purposeful upheaval, we are to rejoice. Why? 
Well, that brings us to the eighth and the final day, the last day, the day of new beginning and new creation, the day when we celebrate the new start that Hashem has for us. And these, these are the festivals of Hashem in a nutshell. There's so much more that could be gone into in the, each of these festivals, but there are so many other teachings out there on the overwhelming depth that each one of these holds. Now, one thing that I would like to address before closing, it's popularly said that Yeshua fulfilled the spring feasts in his first coming, Pesach, Matzah, Shavuot, Passover, Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and then that the fall feasts will be fulfilled in his second coming. This view is, in my opinion, it's a limited view of these festivals. Now, if we consider it, Yeshua fulfilled the fall Moedim in his first coming as well. He fulfilled Yom Teruah with his coronation on the cross. He fulfilled Yom Kippur by making atonement for our sins. And he fulfilled Sukkot by coming and tabernacling with us in a temporary dwelling of his flesh and being born in a temporary dwelling. And he fulfilled the eighth day, the day of new creation, in each one of us when we join ourselves to him. He fulfilled the eighth day in his resurrection, and specifically, he fulfilled it in Thomas, when faith became sight and hope became reality. John twenty nineteen through 20 says, When therefore it was evening on that day, day one of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples met for fear of the Jews, Yeshua came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace to you. And having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. His disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Master. Then Yeshua said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also sent you. And having said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Yeshua came. So the other disciples said to him, We have seen the Master. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and put my finger into the imprint of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I shall by no means believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Yeshua came, and the doors having been shut, and he stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Bring your finger here and see my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My master and my God. And Yeshua said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have been blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Eight days after he appeared to the disciples, their hope became sight. For Thomas specifically, the one who didn't believe, it became reality. Now the Moedim, they are observances. Some are joyous, some are somber. All are meaningful and powerful. And each was fulfilled by Yeshua in his first coming. And I believe that each will be fulfilled also at his second coming a new and a fresh revelation of who Hashem is and His love for the world and His love for each one of us. Now, earlier I made a distinction between the Moadim and the Chag. Well, the Chag festivals combined, they celebrate something specific, the harvest. Matzah, Passover, celebrating the barley harvest. 
Shavuot celebrating the wheat harvest, and Sukkot celebrating the grape harvest and the rest of the vegetables and fruits that they were grown. Each Chag celebrating what God has done for us, his provision and his mercy, and the fruit that he causes us to bear in his name. His love for us. Too often in our modern worship, we discard these festivals in exchange for traditions that we're comfortable with or that we like. But these festivals, they are not about us. Our worship is not about us. Our worship and these festivals are all about Him. And if we make this worship, if we make our celebrations about us, well, then we've strayed from the path of life. So, Dereshchai, seek life in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Dereshchai, as we seek life. Shalom.